you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We began a new series last week, working through this Gospel, delving first into the prologue, these first 18 verses that are unlike anything else in any of the Gospels, and they're just amazing. I gave you an exhortation last week. I hope that you took me up on it, that you, that you meditated on these uh, first three to five verses that we were looking at last week. Um, and I have been praying, as I prayed last week, that the Holy Spirit would take those verses and you're meditating upon them and do something special, do something wonderful in your hearts. And I, and I expect that if you did, then He did, and that if you will, He will. If you weren't here last week, I want to bring you up to speed quickly. We're looking at Jesus being referred to by John in this prologue as the Word. And it's a Greek word that some of you may even be familiar with, logos. Right? And I won't rehash all of the reasons for his choice of that word. I would encourage you to, to download or, or stream the podcast from last week to get up to speed on that. But I will remind you of a few things, and I've got a list of them for you, um, that the word we saw last week is eternal. He's not a created being. He was with God in the beginning. Closely related to his eternality is the fact that he is creator. We saw in these verses last week, he was active in creation. Anything that was made was made by the Word. We looked also at His divinity. We looked at the fact that, that the Word was God. And we talked about why that is so important, so essential that the Word be God. We talked about that it's because we have a problem as, as rebels and as sinners, as, as unrighteous and that problem requires a miraculous and a supernatural solution that only God could provide, that, that He would give Himself up for us, that He would be crucified and killed in our place to pay the penalty for our sin and our rebellion. Only the death of God Himself could be a sacrifice sufficient, big enough, of such magnitude that it would cover the sins of all those who will ever place their faith in him. See, if a righteous man had died, if, if Jesus had only been a man, only a creature, then yes, he could have died. He could have given his life as a sacrifice for one person. For one other creature. One life for one life. But because he himself is God, existing from all eternity, his death is something special. His death is unparalleled. It's unmatched. And as such, it is sufficient to cover all the sins of God's elect. He's eternal. He's creator. He's divine. And we also got into a little exploration of the Trinity last week because of the way John worded things. He said the Word was God, but he also said the Word was with God. 
And how do you make those two things fit together? Well, you come away with the understanding that the Word is a distinct person, distinct from the other persons who also share in the distinction of being God, namely the Father and the Holy Spirit. So suffice it to say, those three little verses that we covered last week contained quite a lot, and the two that we'll get to this morning are no different. So we need to dig in right away. We're going to read all five of the beginning verses for context, so please stand if you're able. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. May God bless the preaching of his inspired inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. O word of God, the Christ, the Son of God, would you allow in these moments that the Spirit that proceeds from you and the Father together Would He come now and be our teacher? Would He come with His light that we might understand how You are light and life? Open up this Word to us in a way that is supernatural. Help our understanding of it like only You can Change us. Draw us near. Fix our hearts and their affections on the Lord Jesus in a way that they've never been fixed on Him before. Do it, we pray, for Your own glory and for our good. Amen. Please be seated. So three rather large themes to cover from these two verses. Verses 4 and 5, we've got life and light and darkness. And I had to keep reminding myself this week to pace myself. I I found myself wanting to say so much about each of these and had to remind myself that this is just the prologue, right? And, And as a good introduction that it is, it's giving us a little glimpse of what's to come. And so if you find yourself this morning, like I did this week, thinking, ooh, but what about this as it has to do with light? Ooh, what about this as it has to do with life? Oh, there's this thing about darkness. We can't say it all. Let's all be patient. I'm going to try to be patient. John will eventually get to that, and so will we. I want to tackle these three themes somewhat out of order. I want to put what I think is the most important one last at least in terms of what the Holy Spirit's been pressing on my heart this week. So first we'll look at light, 
and then darkness, and then we'll finish with life. So light from verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, I mentioned last week that John was speaking in terms, especially with his word choice there with logos, talking about Jesus being the word. He was speaking in terms and in ways that would have made sense. It would have resonated across a variety of cultures and worldviews. He would have said these things and lots of ears would have perked up and said, huh, what? What is this? And that is also true with his focus on life and light and even darkness. Right? Life and light are common goals. They are common aims. It's what people are desperately trying to find no matter the religion, no matter the culture, the worldview, the philosophy. And certainly for John's readers who were familiar with the Scriptures, they were familiar with the history of the God of Israel, John starting his gospel like he did saying, in the beginning, right, has us instantly back at creation. And what was God's first act in creation? Right? What did he first accomplish with his powerful word? He said, let there be light and there was. Right, so we're back at creation. But we're also very much in the present. And with the coming of the Word, the incarnation, the, the taking on flesh that the Word did to come to us, and He's coming because we need light. Right? And it's who John says Jesus is. And it's who Jesus will later claim to be. You don't have to turn there, but later in in chapter 8, he's going to say, I am, as he says so often through John, I am the light of the world. Now, why Jesus is the light is related to why we need the light. Isaiah prophesied about both our need for light and the provision of that need. Very famous chapter that we're often in at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The Word had to come as light because of the darkness we walk in and dwell in. And we need to look at that darkness a bit from verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. Right? Our darkness is ultimately why the Word had to come. Darkness is the context. It's our context in which we find ourselves. It's the setting for the entrance of the Word. And again, if you think about creation, this fits right in. Right? Think about creation. Think about Genesis 1-2. Right? The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And into that physical darkness, God spoke. He said, let there be light. 
But the pages of Scripture will also go on to reveal a spiritual darkness. A separation from, an estrangement from God because of our rebellion and sin. And it's into this spiritual darkness that God speaks His final, perfect, and powerful word into the darkness of our rebellion and our sin, into our estrangement and separation from God, the Word who is the light is spoken to us. Now, here's one of those themes that's certainly going to be developed more in this Gospel. Okay? But one of the things that it does immediately right here is it prepares us for the rejection that's going to come in a few verses. Verses 10 and 11, we're, not going, to, we're going to save it, right? We're not going to go there yet. But there's rejection coming. There's, this light is going to be rejected. And we're being prepared for that. Now, what we do need to deal with now is this phrase at the end of 5, the darkness has not overcome the light. And so we're, I'm using the ESV, the English Standard Version, and, and that uses overcome. Uh, yours may or may not have a footnote there. It might offer uh, an alternative translation of something like comprehend or understood. The darkness didn't comprehend the light. Right? And here's the thing. That word is used to mean both of those things. So how do we know? Well, here's a shameless plug for how you know. You can find out how you know which of those meanings is best if you would come to our Sunday school class that's currently going on where we're learning how to study God's Word together. We're learning even, we will begin next week, making those types of decisions. Well, if it can mean both of those things, what does it mean here? All right? 9.15 next Sunday. But one of the commentators that I read uh, pretty sure it was D.A. Carson, suggested that this ambiguity, uh, John choosing a word here that could mean two different things, it was purposeful. It was no accident. Because both of these ideas are at play here. And the more I thought about it, I, I tend to agree with him. See, darkness in the Bible can obviously be an absence of light. Right, The context into which Jesus came was one of deep unbelief. As we're going to see in this gospel, staggering unbelief. Unbelief that just makes your jaw drop and we just don't even believe that they could not believe. Right? But darkness isn't just the absence of light, it's also very often the presence of evil. couple of other places in scripture that, that that deal with this one comes from the gospel of john itself one comes from paul that sheds some light onto this darkness um, see what i did there um, so john 3 soon after the bible's most famous verse that everyone knows um, jesus is saying that those not believing in the son that god sent are condemned and then in, in verse 19 has this to say. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, 
And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. People love darkness and they hate light when there's evil present. Evil that they can't stand be exposed or revealed in the light. I thought recently about a sermon that I heard Tim Keller, uh, pastor in, in New York, uh, preach. Because uh, I was talking with a friend uh, about this friend's son who's now expressing a lot of doubts. Uh, even a lot of atheistic kind of uh, beliefs or unbelief as the case may be. And Keller in this sermon was talking about counseling folks who were struggling with doubts with their faith. Those who had otherwise at some point expressed some belief, some faith in Christ, but later began to doubt. And he said they would come to him and they'd say, well, I'm just not sure anymore. You know, I've got all these doubts and I'm, I'm trying to make all this add up and, and I'm just not so sure anymore that it, that it does add up, that it really does make sense in the end. And what Keller would often say to them was shocking right? He's dealing, New York City is dealing lots of, with lots of singles, lots of career and professional types, lots of young folks. And on more than one occasion, he would stop them in the middle of their, oh, I'm doubting about this and doubting about that. And he would ask, well, who are you sleeping with? And the reaction he described was of deer in the headlights. Because it might not have been that specific sin. But he said the vast majority of the time, those doubts were growing in the soil of rebellion. That there was something going on in a very important way that this person who now all of a sudden was beginning to doubt, right, that they were just in a place where they needed to hate the light. They needed the light to go away before it exposed what they were doing. And can I tell you that I have seen this over and over again? Tragically, right? Someone who all of a sudden, well, there's all these doubts now where there didn't used to be doubts. And it might seem on the surface like some great intellectual or existential struggle or crisis that they're going through, but eventually the real struggle nine times out of ten is revealed. And it comes to light. And the person leaves their wife because they found their true soulmate. Oh, that's why you're doubting. That's why you began to hate the light. See, darkness is the absence of light and it is the presence of evil. Evil within, but also evil from the outside as well, right? From our enemy. Darkness is deep opposition to the light, right? 2 Corinthians 4 is the classic text on this. Paul is speaking about folks for whom the gospel is veiled. They don't get it. 
They can't see it, make sense of it. And here's what he has to say, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The God, now note that's little g God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The enemy of Christ keeps people in the dark. He hates the idea of them seeing the light, the glory, the gospel. That opposition is real. It is deep. But thanks be to God, it is not ultimate. That's what John is saying. The darkness has not overcome the light, though it has tried. Though it will continue to try. It has not overcome it. There is hope. The Spirit is able to heal that blindness, to lift that darkness, to enable us to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the Word Himself. Now, finally, back to the actual number one on our list. Life. Verse 4, in Him was life. Life is in Jesus, in the Word. So let's go back to the garden again, all right? Where death entered the world. And the quest, the search for life began. And you see it throughout history. You see it throughout the Old Testament. How do we get it back? How can we have life? And John knows. If you remember from last week, that's the purpose of writing his gospel, that life is in Jesus, right? We saw last week toward the end of his gospel, the the purpose statement there in chapter 20, verse 31, right? Now, Jesus did many other signs, right? This isn't getting them all. John says, I know, I'm leaving stuff out, but these are written. What I've selected, what I've curated for you here is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, John says it about Jesus, right? Life is in him. Jesus will go on many, many times to say it about himself, right? So just a few, uh, John 11, right? He's talking to the, the sisters of Lazarus before he raises him from the dead, right? What does he tell them? I am the resurrection and the life. Later, famously, John 14, 6. Many of you probably know it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? Another famous one, John 10, 10. Right? I've come, he says, so that you might have life. That you might have it to the full. That you might have it abundantly. But your enemy this deep darkness and opposition to the light, he wants to kill you. Now, what what does it mean? What does it entail for Jesus to be the life? Right? He's the origin. He's the source of that life as we've already seen from his activity in creation. But he's also 
we miss this sometimes, he's also the sustaining force behind our continued having life. We looked at two passages last week, looking at them about his act in creation. And both of those mention this sustaining force as well. One was from Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17. For by him, speaking of Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him and... He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, you think it's centrifugal force, gravity, that keeps the earth doing its thing around the sun, that keeps the atoms of our body bonded to one another. You, you think these things are just some force of nature and they just happen. If Jesus weren't upholding all things, earth would sling out of its orbit like a rocket. We would disintegrate. He's sustaining you. He's holding you together. Hebrews 1, we also looked at. Hebrews 1, verse 3. Again, speaking of Christ. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of His nature. See, God can't be seen. God's a spirit. But Jesus took on flesh so we could see. Right? The exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's why everything's working like it's supposed to work. It's because the Word causes it to. In Him was life. Now, here's one of the things that I've really been struck by from meditating on this passage. Thinking about life being in Jesus. We're fine, right? Most of us are just fine with Jesus wanting us to have abundant life. Right? We love that, right? Who wouldn't want that? That's very, that's very nice of Jesus to want us to have abundant life. We love that. What some of us are not so keen on is that Jesus says he is that life. There's a lot of folks. Some of us here this morning that just want to use Jesus. You know that feeling you get when you realize someone's been using you? Is that not one of the worst feelings ever? It makes you feel so stupid to come to the, real, the realization that, that the attention shown, 
that the friendship entered into, that, that the interest that someone expressed in you wasn't ultimately about you, but about what you had to offer. It wasn't you they were interested in. It was your, your money or it was your connections. It was your whatever. And a lot of folks do that with Jesus. They use him as if he's the key to, to unlock a door that they're trying to get through. They use him as if he's a path that leads somewhere down the line to some treasure. They use Jesus as a means for having eternal life. Which, if folks get real honest, they would have to admit that that eternal life they're seeking has very little to do with Jesus. They say, well, I I believe in Jesus. He died for my sins. That's great. That takes care of that problem. And now I can go on and do my thing. He's freed me up now. I don't have to worry about that. Hindered by this pesky little problem of sin and eternal torment. Glad that is done. Thank you, Jesus. Stop using Jesus. Is my exhortation for you this morning. He is not a means to the end of your best life now. He is not the key that unlocks the door to the life you want. He is not a path that leads you to some treasure. He is the treasure. He doesn't lead you to life. He is life. And I hope by the Spirit's help that you get that distinction. Now, I want to try to help you get it. I want to ask a question, right? How do you know? Right? How do I know if I'm just using Jesus? Take a close look. And be as honest as you possibly can. What is it that brings you the deepest sense of joy? Delight. Fulfillment and satisfaction. And if that is is too broad of a question, just narrow it down to this last week, right? What was it this past week that sent you over the moon? that had a smile plastered across your face, that flooded your heart with a warmth that you would have difficulty describing to your friend. And if you're sitting there saying, well, I had a crappy week, so I'm off the hook. No. Just ask the question in reverse. What went wrong? What didn't happen that kept you from that deep sense of joy and delight and fulfillment? Whatever made your week or whatever wrecked your week, that's where you're going to find what your life is.
what does the prologue to your gospel say? Right? Does it say, in him was life? Or does it say something else? In my family is life. In my job. In my bank account balance. In my leisure. In my pleasure. In my sports. In my reputation. And whatever it is there, we often don't see that as a problem because we feel like, well, hey, I've checked the Jesus box. So this is all good now. We can get on to bigger and better things. I, Jesus, I've done business with Jesus. Now I can move on to what's really important, but what we don't get is he is the bigger and better. He is the thing that transcends all the other things. The joy and delight that make all the other little joys and delights pale in comparison. They still might be lovely things. They still might be good things. But they do not flood our hearts with bliss the way that Jesus does. And for some of you in this room this morning, that sounds strange. That sounds foreign. You don't think about Jesus in terms of bliss and joy and delight and deep satisfaction. And that's a problem. I was thinking even this morning about one other sort of telltale way to know. Am I using Jesus? Is to think about heaven. Maybe it's heaven you're using Jesus for. And some of you say, but wait a minute, isn't, isn't that kind of the point? What is it that you long for about heaven? That you say, I'm so thankful for Jesus and I cannot wait to get to heaven for blank. What goes in your blank? Right? Is it seeing some loved one that you miss terribly? Right? That the loss is still palpable and real? Is it to have a body that's free of sickness and decay? Or when you think about heaven, is your first and greatest desire to catch that very first glimpse of your Savior? To see His face for the very first time. And to fall down at his feet and say, thank you. Praise you. I do not say these things to try to shame you. If in the honesty of your heart you say, that's not my experience. My goal is not to shame you, but I do say this to give you a warning. 
to say, oh, friends, please don't be deceived. Please don't be fooled. If Jesus is not your deepest joy and delight and pleasure, if he is not the thing you hope for in the future with all the energy you can imagine, then do not presume that you actually know Him. Because to know Him is to delight in Him like that. See, ultimately, this is not a matter of the head. This is not a chore of the intellect, but of the heart and what you love, what your affections are fixed on. That is what reveals where, what, who you're finding life in. And if it's not Jesus, then cry out to him today if God gives you the grace to do that. And beg him to capture your heart in such a way That you can say honestly from the depths of your being, He is my life. And I guarantee you that is a prayer that He will absolutely love to answer for you. He will do it. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. In you is life. And that life is our light. And that light shines in the darkness, even in the darkness that the enemy has imposed upon those who don't yet believe the gospel. Thank you for the hope and the promise that that darkness is not ultimate. Holy Spirit, would you come even in these moments and lift that darkness. Heal the blindness. Move. Open up hearts that they might freely receive the Word, the light, the life. We pray in his powerful name and we expect him to work. Amen. Please stand.